Welcome all. We're sat among the Vickers Collection. It's a display of scientific artifacts at the University of York, this time with a very special guest to talk about science communication and why we at least think things like this podcast have value. Welcome to A Glass of Seawater. So I'm Andrew. Uh, you may remember me back from way back when in the first episodes. Otherwise, you've possibly seen me at science fairs and widening participation and all that sort of thing. Uh, I've been briefly allowed a break from running the show to uh, host a show. I'm joined by Will, who uh, is well known for developing outreach uh, games, I guess we call them, hands-on activities. Activities, yeah. Activities <laughs> uh, to help us explain plasma physics. He's a founder podcaster here, and he's a member of the uh, Science and Technology Facility Council's Early Careers Forum. So that's exciting. Um, we're very lucky to welcome back Kate, whose time we intrude on far too much, nah. uh, but who brings a wealth and breadth of experience of outreach to our department and much good advice, some of which we listen to on the podcast. And the reason that I'm introducing everybody uh, on their behalf rather than letting them do it is we are very excited today to welcome to our podcast the brilliant Professor Jim Al-Khalili. Jim's research is in theoretical nuclear physics, as well as more recently things like uh, quantum tunneling and DNA, which is uh, very exciting, all of which gets into Professor of Physics at the University of Surrey. But never mind all that, uh, quick searching today, we reckon you've written at least 15 books, uh, 18 TV documentaries, five radio shows, including the, the probably better than this podcast, uh, Fabulous <laughs> Life Scientific. Uh, I think they're neck and neck. <laughs> <laughs> oh, very kind. I'm not sure how Radio 4 will feel. Quick, write that, uh, write that down. Yeah, write that somewhere. That's an endorsement. <laughs> yeah. uh, you've got medals for science communication and personal broadcasting, given advice to the Cheltenham Science Festival, Royal Society, Institute of Physics, Campaign for Science and Engineering, presiding over the British Science Association, and Professor of Public Engagement in Science at the University of Surrey, and most importantly, he is in town tonight to give the Jim Matthew Lecture, uh, who was himself a communicator, and tonight's title is Spreading the Word, Why Science Communication is So Vital, So a Finer Guest We Could Not Have Asked For for this episode. Well, thank you very much. Did we miss anything? No, (laughs) I think you've pretty much covered all the bases there. I hadn't realised. That makes me sound quite busy, actually. (laughs) That was so well polished. I know. I feel yeah. like you set a standard there that yeah. we should have let me host one of the other 18 or so that we've done. Yeah. It's probably just going to go downhill from now on, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, we'll babble in All right, so we wanted to start the conversation today by um, basically stealing your theme from, from tonight's talk, uh, looking at why is it important to do science communication. So the question I've put first is, if science is often rated uh, by its impact, then what impact does communication have? Well... Various reasons why science communication is important. I mean, I, I have to admit that when I communicate science to the wider public, whether it's broadcasting or public lectures or writing, I'm not doing it because I feel sort of altruistically that, you know, I have a duty to, you know, to spread the word. I do it because I enjoy it. Yeah. I enjoy do it because I, I like to see the light bulb go on over someone's head when I explain something to them yeah. that I found fascinating. Mm. So I do it because it's fun. But of course, I think for me, because of a lot of the research that I do and the physics that I do is is theoretical and sort of very exotic and exciting, quantum mechanics and so on, I, I want science to be part of popular culture. I want people to be talking about whether it's the Higgs boson or fusion or, or astronomy in the same way that they will sit in the pub and talk about sports or politics or no one wants to talk about politics these days. Oh, <laughs> 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 it hasn't not that long before we could almost mention the B word. Um, 
but you know, just, just to embed it, you know, it's, it needn't be, you know, we talk about music and literature and arts, why can't science be part of that as well? But in addition to that, of course, science changes our lives, yeah. and, and, as mm. in, and, and, you know, we need a, uh, a scientifically literate public because, because of the challenges that face us in the 21st century, and people need to know what to, you know, what to do about climate change, what to do about tackling the big challenges. It's not, so it's not just curiosity-driven, mm. it's because it's such an integral part of the modern-day world. Yeah. I think I, I was a little bit more wide-eyed than you, start, starting off in... Because uh, obviously I was in fusion anyway, and so I did have these kind of big ideas. I was going to change the world! But obviously, you know, the scales fall from your eyes eventually. Uh, I know, and I know I'm an applause hound, and there's nothing like a thousand hands clapping that, you know... Yeah, I'm not going to pretend nice. that's not good, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I like telling stories, and I, I kind of see myself actually as a per performing monkey, really. I just want to share stories with people and entertain them for first and foremost and then the it, you know if people do end up getting inspired and support fusion then that's a good thing because that's going to help all of us hopefully if it ever mm. come, <laughs> if it comes up when, when it comes <laughs> it'll be, uh, but it's true isn't surprise. it the science communication you know you do have to like to perform yeah look at me listen to me i've got something really interesting yeah. to say right <laughs> yeah. i want to be the center of attention it's no no good being shy and reserved mm. and then doing it if you feel uncomfortable, yeah, about it. you have to enjoy it. Yeah, it's probably no accident that the people in this room do quite a lot of teaching as well. Then, yeah, in yeah. our postgraduate stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. same showmanship. Yeah. yeah, it's all it's all about explaining. You know, if you're explaining mm. to, to to students, explain to to kids, or explain to the public, it's all about getting some of these concepts across to someone else. Except my dad, who <laughs> refuses to understand. Does he listen? My parents have listened to this podcast. No, he Aww. doesn't. He does repeatedly send me emails about the Higson's boson and explaining what it is. Quite my field, but yeah. Those emails from the parents saying, have you seen this Fusion article? Yeah. It's sort of right, yeah. <laughs> I mean, my mum and dad just talk about Jim all the time. And they say, oh, we've seen Jim on the telly. It's like, ne never anything to do with <laughs> Never anything that you do. Yeah. Oh, no, that's n that is a lie. They have actually come to see me live many times. Bless them. So, uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I, I want to start referring to seeing lecturers like that. Just seeing them live, talking about science. <laughs> <laughs> Second. Yeah. To be fair, actually, uh, when I first realised you could do science communication, it was you, Jim, that uh, we went to see a lecture that you gave... Gosh, years ago now. This, was this when you Nearly were still a, couple a, of a very, very young lady, a student of mine at Surrey? Yes. Uh, yeah, no, uh, yeah, we went, we, we came and saw you give a public lecture and I was like, hmm, I like that. I could, I could, I could get a bit of that. Well, I don't know if I thought I could do it. It just made me realise you could do it. Because I didn't know what I was going to be at that time. <laughs> but, but it's worth pointing out that when I started science communication in the sort of early mid '90s, it wasn't a respectable thing to do for an academic. Mm. You know, you, you those who did science communication were the ones who didn't have a research active um, sort of career or did a lot of teaching. <laughs> they were just the people who you know weren't good at anything else. Oh, <laughs> but but it's but it's now it's different. It's now yeah. it's you know I wanted to do both the research and the yeah. and the communicating that yeah, research. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Well, certainly for this age as well, a lot of people get into this because of remembering experience they've had with science communicators, communicators like, I was going to say, all of us. <laughs> <laughs> like some of us, like one of us. Uh, but I, yeah, you remember that as a really enjoyable experience. And then when you get to this point and you recall, you know, that's such an important reason why you get into science. It's a real big drive for why I wanted to get into it as well. Be on the other end of something that inspired you to be where you are now. 
Mm, but it's also encouraged now by mm. universities and yeah. departments. You know, in the, in the past it wasn't. Yeah. You, you were told to, to, to choose. And if you really sold out and went to science communication, then you were no longer a proper scientist. Yeah. Now, I was very lucky, actually, because um, when I started doing it, I was based at the Rutherford Atherton Lab, and they couldn't get enough of it. And actually, I was just very, very much pushed into it as well and really encouraged and and it helped me get promoted there as well so you know having that as an example has been really encouraging mm. actually i've noticed if you say yes to one thing then people, people <laughs> know where your office is after that. yeah. <laughs> that's okay you just have to learn how to say no yeah that's hard actually you haven't figured that yeah. one out yet. <laughs> i'm teaching too much yeah um so if okay if we take that as our, our motivation then we're you know we've covered reasons why we're getting into this this dive into how we do it. Um, for us in Fusion, we talk about uh, a very interdisciplinary subject. We're talking about very complicated bits of physics all, all fit together. Uh, for many people, plasma physics is a postgraduate experience. Um, you come from a similar background, Jim, of a, a murky quantum world of all sorts of things going on and, and theoretical physics. How do we go about passing these big ideas for the people we're talking to. If, for example, we were writing a ladybird book of quantum physics, <laughs> how do you start? <laughs> we, this, you know, with everything I know, how do we get it back down to something that's a, a block to give people? Well, I mean, I, obviously, there are different levels of, of how much information you want to get across. Uh, you, you don't want to give the impression that a, a complicated subject like fusion or quantum mechanics can be encapsulated in sound bites because yeah. then you know the, the wider public then go away and think oh well, that's all, all there is to it you know, I understand it you know and, and I'll get the half a dozen emails sometimes a day from people who are convinced they can explain the two slit experiments of quantum mechanics you know with some uh, they, the emails always start off with I have no background in physics however <laughs> I have discovered the, uh, the secret of the universe and I'm, a part of that is sort of our fault if we try and make it sound like it's you know we can explain it all neatly and carefully. I remember interviewing Peter Higgs on, on, on the Life Scientific on Radio 4, and I asked him to explain the Higgs boson, right? You're the man, you should be able to, can, can you give me a succinct explanation? And he, he gave a, a sort of a really eloquent five-minute discussion about broken symmetries and quantum field theories and so on. And he could probably tell by the look on my face that none of this was going to get <laughs> And I nodded, I said, oh, that's beautiful. He said, yeah, but it's not really uh, um, uh, the right level for the wider public. I said, oh, well, okay. You know, I'm thinking, okay, none of this will get used. Can you explain the Higgs boson just in 30 seconds? He said, no, I can't do it. <laughs> but how about if I gave you a minute? And he said, no, I don't think I can. He said, but I've been thinking about this for half a century. <laughs> what, what right... <laughs> you know, should anyone have been expecting me to encapsulate it? It's like Richard Feynman, the great American physicist. Somewhat, a journalist asked him after he won his Nobel Prize, can you give me a soundbite about what you won the Nobel Prize for? He said, young man, if I could explain to you what I won my Nobel Prize for in a soundbite, it wouldn't be worth a Nobel Prize. <laughs> so, yeah, sometimes I think you have to work yeah. harder at it. Yeah, I mean, I suppose there's, there's always sort of hooks in as to, you know, why something is important to whoever it is, and whether that is because it's going to directly affect their life or whether it's just because, like with Higgs, it's pretty esoteric. You know, how does that tie everything in the universe together mm. and, you know, why is that important, you know? Yeah, but I mean, but sometimes you can... Uh, depends what, what you want to get out of the explaining. It might be just to inspire. You mm. know, earlier today I gave, gave a, a, a school's talk uh, about time travel. 
And is time travel possible? And so there, it's just to get them all excited. And it, it's, a, it's a way of talking about relativity theory. And Einstein's theory says that time slows down around a black hole and so on. And, you know, it's, you can explain it to, to teenagers in a way that makes it sound exciting. They're not going to be able to solve Einstein's field equations of general relativity, but then that's not the expectation. That's yeah. not what I want them to learn. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and actually I learned the hard way with that because I was at the same event today, but I talk about fusion, believe it or not. <laughs> um, and I think I came in the first... Well, we started doing this a decade ago, and I came in with too much detail, I think, the first time I did it. And I had to kind of shave out and shave out until you've got the essence of what you want to, you know, come across with. Until your PowerPoint slides have no words on <laughs> Just pictures. Just pictures, <laughs> yeah. But I love talking from just pictures. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to have a good memory. <laughs> well, if you've done it enough, I suppose it's, yeah. it's fine. Well, with you these ones the we notes. have, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's, so it's, yeah, it's straightforward. Yeah. My favourite outreach activities or explanations always come from something that is visually quite simple, but quite related to, or at least somewhat related to the physics you're trying to explain. So if you've ever seen that example of explaining curvature of space-time with that spread-out sheet. Oh, the trampoline the, thing yeah. in the ball yeah, in the middle. Yeah, trampoline, yeah. ball in the middle. And then, so that's... A really nice way and it can you can generate proper orbits like that and it's not it's not entirely dissimilar to the actual case it's just considering the same physics but just in a few couple less dimensions yeah that's how we do fusion isn't it yeah. so take a dimension off there uh, yeah. so i, I <laughs> 2d 3d in, yeah in designing activities i always try and come with that approach where can we find something that's visually similar yeah but also still related to the physics um but those are really hard activities to yeah. come up with usually. Yeah. But you do, it's something you, you learn with experience. You know, you start to learn certain analogies, certain mm -hmm. ways of explaining things that work with some audiences better than with others. Sometimes, you know, you, it's the same talk, but I'm, I, I give different examples depending on the age group or the, the level of scientific knowledge of the audience. Uh, and you just, you just pick the right analogy, the right example that actually, you know, they're not going to cap understand it entirely but it gives them the essence of what you want to get across hmm. what do you think about sort of passive versus active because obviously you know do a lot of like standing up and lecturing and stuff and sometimes that feels quite like i'm talking to you you must listen to me and how do you feel about that um as opposed to something like citizen science getting people really involved in in science the act of science and having ownership over it yeah i mean i think <clears throat> 20 odd years ago, science communication changed from what used to be called the public understanding of science, which then became known as the deficit model, because the assumption is yeah. that the public are the empty vessels to be filled with your wisdom, and you yeah. stand there and you lecture at them, became public engagement in science and became a two-way uh, process. But I, I, I still see that there's a place for you know, I am. I have spent my career look, thinking about this particular aspect of, of the universe, yeah. and the audience doesn't, and they would like me to explain it to them, yeah, and, yeah. and I explain it. So I don't yeah. think, I don't need the audience to, to come back at me. I don't need to ask them questions yeah. and see what they think. Yeah. But you know, you do enough to, to make sure that they're engaged and part of the process. Yeah, and, you yeah. Know, yeah. Crack a joke and hope if they don't laugh. <laughs> well, that was actually quite a funny joke. So you're clearly all asleep. <laughs> It was funny, I mean, I, in my time travel um, lecture to, these, to, to year 10, so 15-year-olds, I always say, you know, Stephen Hawking said that um, time travel into the past can't be possible, otherwise where are all the time travellers from the future? 
And I said, well, one explanation may be that there are time travellers from the future, they're just keeping a low profile. <laughs> and I look out and say, well, so hands up, who's a time traveller from the future? And last week, I gave this talk in Oxford, and half the audience stuck their hands up. I thought, well done, you've just given yourselves away really easily. But in Sheffield, earlier today, no one stuck their hand up. So I said, oh, well done, You're, you time travellers from the future are, are much more smart, discerning. Yeah, You're the smart Coburn. ones who settled yeah. in Sheffield. Yeah. <laughs> It relates to a sort of pet question of mine that I ask quite a lot about average. To what extent does it help in bringing people with us to, rather than showcasing our answers and this is my research and what I found, uh, to do as part of the average presentation how we got to the answer and what, what the, the research process was and the methodology, that kind of thing. Do you think that helps in big complicated bits of science? Yeah, I think it helps in the sense that you, you don't just want to explain something so they can go away and explain it to their mates. You want them, if you want to inspire, particularly you know, younger students, to go into science, they need to believe that they too can do it. Uh, and which I, so I always say that you know, going and giving talks, and people like me or Brian Cox going and giving a talk in a school, probably we aren't great role models. You know, oh. no one's going. No, but it's true. Then you know, kids aren't going to look and say, "Oh, you know, Brian Cox is doing well. You know, particle physics and astronomy. Well, one day I want to be like him." They're probably thinking, "I could never be a, a Brian Cox. I'd have to, you know, join a pop group first. Have some floppy hair. Have some floppy hair. <laughs> you know. though, yeah. yeah. Well, that's true. <laughs> you know, but if you guys go, you know, uh, because you're younger, you're that much closer to them. You know, they could. That's probably your far better role models, probably in inspiring, and and particularly talking about your journey and talking about the process of science mm. and how you come to a particular. How do we know that this happens? Well, because we have discovered this, and this is the experiment that we did. That is as important as the the sexy concepts themselves. Yeah, well, I think humanising it as well, yeah. because when you do that, it actually makes it accessible in the sense that someone can look at that and go, I could probably do that. It's just when somebody, it looks like a lone person in a room making a discovery. And we know that's not how science works, really. Very right. rarely. Yeah. It's loads of people in a room pulling their hair out. Well, you know, for us, firing lasers <laughs> and stuff and going, why isn't this working? And most of science is like nine times out of ten, it's failure, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's the problem with the history of science, the way the stories are told. Yeah. That it's, you know, one person. You know, Einstein discovered relativity. Well, actually, the maths was all sorted out before him. There were lots of other people. Everyone stands on the shoulders of people before them. So science is collaborative and it's lots of people but we tend to package it up neatly yeah. into you know your, your Schrodinger and Bohr and Einstein yeah. and Newton as though no one else did any made any contributions yeah. but, but that I also think is to do with the culture of science itself because you might have had all of that failure but then you write that paper which looks yeah. like a fait accompli you know that's how we did it it's not there was all that failure, which you're not allowed to publish because that doesn't count for anything. <laughs> that could help someone else, but yet, that's, so that's the culture within our world, yeah. so it probably looks like... We have, you know. we have to admit to our mistakes. Yeah. Otherwise, um, if we didn't make mistakes, we wouldn't develop in science. Yeah. I, I, I did a documentary, uh, BBC4 documentary on gravity year before last, mm. and we'd almost finished all the filming when, uh, and I was going to do sort of the final voiceover, final editing, I got something completely wrong. I had, I was measuring the rate that time flows on the North Pole compared with the equator, right? So on the North Pole, because the Earth is squashed, oblate, the North Pole is closer to the centre of the Earth, so it feels a stronger gravitational pull, so clocks slow down more. 
but the clock on the equator is moving in orbit around, so clocks slow down there because of special relativity. <laughs> so, so the two sort of act against each other, and I did this calculation to work out which, and it turns out the one on the North Pole wins. And then I realised that uh, what I was saying was complete nonsense. <laughs> it was just completely wrong. It's the, the Earth, all points on the surface of the Earth at sea level, clocks tick at the same rate. It's the surface of a geoid. It's a sort of equipotential surface. And, and our podcast listeners are all... They all understand yeah, this, right? Yeah. Have to, I'm going to nod and say way. yes, I definitely understand. Right. Okay. Well, basically, basically... It wouldn't be squashed if it wasn't that level of gravity. Exactly. It, it, it takes that shape in order to ensure that all points on the surface feel the same gravitational potential. Mm-hmm. So all clocks stick at the same rate. So the BBC said, oh, well, we'll just reshoot the bits where you said it's wrong and, and we'll go down with that. I said, no, this is a really good opportunity mm-hmm. to show that, you know, I will own up and say, look, I've made a mistake and this is how some, oh, well, Jim, we're worried about your reputation as a, as a physicist and a broadcaster, you know, if you admit your mistake. I said, look, I'm not a politician. Yeah. You know, they will never admit mistakes. <laughs> but in science, that's exactly, you know, if we if we gave up after every mistake, we'd not get anywhere. Yeah. Uh, we're embracing the ability to make mistakes as a real step in changing how you learn it makes you learn much faster it's so much like mm. faster to learn by getting everything wrong instead of just focusing on exactly what's right exactly and and scientists are not ashamed to make yeah. mistakes i mean yeah. as you say when you publish the final paper you don't talk about all the wrong turns and yeah. sort of blind alleys you've gone down you just give your final result but there's no shame in saying that you've made a mistake no no it can prevent you from doing something i was going to say stupid i don't mean stupid i mean not normal. <laughs> Not correct. Not correct. <laughs> Not correct. <laughs> a lot of discoveries come from making strange abstract decisions yeah. and um, trying something different. Yeah. Well, I think for us, like, just firing a laser at something sometimes, you know, we know what we're trying to get, but serendipity means you're going to get something over here that you didn't expect, and that almost always happens. Mm-hmm. Mm. And that just seeds another bit of science. So, you know, it's, it's quite nice. <laughs> yeah. I, wonder, I wonder if the, the mistakes thing helps with a sort of chronology as well, in that... If we think of science as a kind of moments of inspiration and flashes of, of brilliance, then that puts people off if they don't realise it's actually kind of kind of a grind of mm-hmm. working through yeah. things and problem solving, and yeah. that makes it much more, I think, human and achievable. Yeah, well. definitely. Has anyone has anyone had a moment of inspiration? Something where they've just clicked something. I've had and it in teaching. I've suddenly realised how it all fits together when I was explaining things to someone. So you've run out of the room and that's to go write <laughs> it down. <laughs> I just write it on the on the sheet I had in my hand. Because I I don't think. I've I've not been doing it as long as Kate and Jim, but I've I've never like, in my in my what two years <laughs> of long two and research, a half, well. I ne- never get any moment where there's some sort of like big leap forward. It's sort of just like oh maybe if I try this and then it will fix one problem but reveal two more. I think it. I mean the eureka moments in science you do get them. They're they're not all Nobel Prize winning sort mm. of discoveries. There might be. I mean for me as a theoretical physicist, it might be a way of solving a particular equation. Uh, that, oh, I know what you can do. You do this, mm. or I know. What if you measure that? What if you switch that off and you play with your com- computer model? And in experiments, what if? Oh, I know. What if we turn this electric field up? What if we put a put, put some sort of barrier there and stop? And they're tiny things, yeah. but they are. You're you're just solving multiple problems to make your experiment work or to get your theory yeah, yeah, to be solved. Yeah. So there there are eureka moments, mm-hmm. but they're maybe incremental. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I find it's a slow burn because I've been looking at some data for, for a little while now and we've got to a point where we're like, oh, this is really interesting and I can't explain this. So 
now we've come up with maybe a few ways of trying to explain it and we're trying to work that through with some simulations but you know it's taken us a little while of staring at it and replotting it in different ways to try and you know see what we've just seen so it, you know you're sort of peering at nature there which is quite special really um and you don't we're very privileged to be able to do that, I think. Yeah, we? but but, that's, that's, <laughs> but it's important to, to get that across, yeah, as that's yeah. how we do science. Absolutely. It's not all the genius walking no. along the beach going, ah, I, I understand <laughs> the secrets of the universe, because <laughs> I've solved the equations in my head. Well, <laughs> don't, in, in all honesty, like if I'm walking along the beach, I'm not thinking about physics. I'm thinking about, <laughs> well, pretty much I'm always thinking about where my next meal is coming from. Or I think <laughs> oh, I might want to paddle in the sea. I'm not going to be thinking about physics, no, frankly. No, no. <laughs> I think, I think it ticks away at the back. Though. Exactly, you don't consciously think about yeah. it. So, so talking of, of long, long, slow processes, how do we relate all this to fusion and fusion research? Hmm. How are we going to communicate fusion research? But just to you know, satisfy the brief of the podcast. You know. Yeah, we do usually try, even, even we should probably when I do the laser episodes, yeah. we have to talk about fusion. I, I'd actually yes. be interested to hear what you guys think about this because... Even as recently as two or three years ago, uh, people were very, you know, fusion was really exciting, particularly at the National Ignitions Facility mm-hmm. in California, where they're saying, oh, you know, fully, any minute, any minute now, we're going to yeah. reach break even and we're going to have, yeah. all we need to do is get these 192 lasers smaller and we've got to fire these pellets at several a second. Yeah. And, and, oh, but that's just an engineering problem. That hasn't lived up to it, sort of the promise. Yeah. Um, and you've got, Eater, you know, delays in terms of building that facility. But also, people are now thinking, well, do we need nuclear fission or fusion? Because, you know, with environmental issues, people are now saying, well, you know, solar and, and, um, okay, solar energy is fusion as well. Let's not do it down. It's all fusion in the end. Well, everything's fusion eventually. (laughs) But, you know, solar and wind power. So, so for the wider public, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but it, Fusion seems to be a harder sell now than it was maybe a few years ago. Well, we, similar, I think there's a similar um, sort of rush of excitement on um, the magnetic side and, and about things being an engineering problem and making them smaller. And that's the thing that's been getting the press, yeah. certainly this year anyway. Yeah, definitely. Um, so, I mean, I think an important part of how we engage with that, to my mind anyway, is we've got to um, find hooks for the actual research that we're doing and not these kind of... Mm end reactors that mm. are sort of great ideas and they're really interesting projects but I don't think it helps us um, convey how long it takes or what the steps are to get from here to there you know? yeah well the problem I think with fusion and you know with you know things like oh we're nearly there or whatever is just in order to get even these projects off the ground and funded you have to promise something mm. and you have to promise something to politicians that sounds like it's going to work and we know underneath all of that there's a lot of risk and a lot of uncertainty and that you've got to get the balance right between over promising and then delivering something just enough to show that you know where you're going and sometimes the balance isn't right on either side on the, on the laser side or on the on on you know the magnetic side it can be off kilter but our challenge is to keep the flame burning because it's a long-term thing. We need to keep the public interested, the decision-makers interested, you know, not separating those two out. They're the same thing, you know. But, you know, that's quite difficult, actually. Um, and I think it's just little sort of grassroots things where we have to keep going out and talking to people and kind of going, look, we are working on this. These are the problems. 
you know, these are the challenges. People are generally really excited about it and really receptive, and I think they really want it to happen. I very rarely come across someone who is like, I think you're wasting taxpayers' money, just get out. Like, <laughs> very rarely. Certainly, it should be easier than say, you know, how much money we should spend on building a new particle accelerator. You know, the, yeah. the LHC found the Higgs, but then it hasn't found anything else. Uh, you know, and now they're talking about we need to build a bigger accelerator yeah. to find supersymmetric particles or whatever. Yeah. But so what? At least with fusion, it could change, yeah. change the world. Yeah, yeah. I think there's the gap, isn't there? The big gap between this application of fusion, you know, the kind of clean, safe fuel energy, which is quite easy to grasp, and then the physics, the material science, the robot, it's all quite complicated underneath that. There's, yeah. there's a divide there. Yeah. And we say it a lot. That's, well, I'm sure you, you argue in uh, talk about physics there's a lot, but one of the uh, things that I particularly like about being laser plasma physics, I've said before, is that there's so much laser plasma physics that we, we just don't understand the physics. So these facilities are built to deliver, well, uh, some of them were originally built to deliver fusion, um, but just because they haven't delivered on that target doesn't mean there aren't plenty of other targets in laser plasma physics to yeah. discover. They're still yeah. science facilities uncovering the laws of nature and what on earth happens, we still, we still have very little idea. Yeah. Well, we've got some idea of what happens when you shoot um, a laser, a, a higher power laser into a, into a small target. And yeah, there's yeah. loads of different aspects. But I mean, there. National Ignisfrances is actually getting really close to um, having a good idea of why things went wrong. And now they're sort of reconciling mm. their predictive capability with what's happening. It's really exciting, actually. But also, that machine can be used to understand the origins of magnetic field in the universe. Mm -hmm. You can do basic science on that machine as well. But you see, is that then not solved enough? Because as far as the wider public is concerned, it's all about an engineering problem to light our homes with fusion oh, energy. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I think, and yeah. not just fusion or these facilities actually learning something yeah. more deep about the universe. Yeah, I think, relatively speaking, we're not a big community and there's actually quite a lot of us trying to get out there and tell those separate mm. stories. But yeah, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to get the balance right. Because people want to hear about fusion. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Directly affects them, so. You need somebody who wants to share your message as well. So yeah. You need a platform, yeah. don't you? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I would say just for the uh, timescale um, thing, it's what I don't know if um, Andrew would agree, but um, in, in, in terms of delivering fusion quickly to fix climate change, I think, I think we could say it, there's, there's going to be a real rapid uptake in, in the progression to actually be a significant... Um, combat to climate change. Uh, we've said before in this podcast that it's, we, we think of it as an end game um, resource. Most likely the case that when fuels run out, even f fission fuels will run out, fusion fuels are going to last much longer. So the timescale pressure, I guess maybe we don't really have a timescale pressure. It's just we made the argument that the sooner this thing comes, the better we can, the earlier we can benefit from it. Mm. It's not a combating climate change resource. Yeah, just no. simply because that needs to happen now and mm -hmm. we're nowhere near yeah. delivering you know so that's why we need fission and we need renewables you know you know i always make sure wherever i talk about fusion that it's not going to sort out the the near-term yeah. problem it's a long-term a long-term thing so yeah you just yeah you have to just be careful how you frame it i think yeah yeah yeah. So we've got about two minutes before we have to get you to a sound check. <laughs> so we like to close with a question to make sure that you know everybody gets a, a last word um and the one we were thinking of today is so what do we all want to see from fusion communication in the future? What might we want to get out of it? How could we do it differently? Um, I'm going to put it on Kate first, I think. Oh, wow. God. <laughs> I think we're doing a not a bad job. I think the, prob the problem is 
it can be a bit um, territorial and, you know, one v the other. And I've always been very, very sure to never do that. I talk about both when I talk about it. And I always say, I always say, just because I'm in laser plasma doesn't mean I don't support MCF. And I feel like there needs to be a lot more just coming together and talking about it in general and not just, this is going to win, this is going to win. And, you know, I think, because uh, I think it puts unnatural divides where there needn't be actually, because there's lots of common problems between the two. Mm. Yeah, we do try and record a balance of magnetic and laser fusion. Yeah, you guys do a really good job, actually. released in the right yeah. order sometimes. No, <laughs> no, you guys do a really good job, and who is on the podcast yeah. it is very balanced, actually. I think it's a good thing. Oh, thank you, Kate. Yeah. Well, go on. I want to see what happens when ETA turns on and we get, I don't know what result, first plasma, something, but some, some sort of big result from ETA. I want to see a huge explosion of excitement at that point, ready to jump on that horse when we get to it and just, well, maybe not reinvigorate, invigorate uh, a lot of excitement in, uh, in fusion research and try and get that out. And it's, you know, it's a huge science project, um, really cool physics going on. It'd just be great to get that and talk about that as much as possible to anyone who will listen. Fair enough. Jim, what's your take? Um, well, I think it's something, pick up on something that Will said earlier, that uh, maybe not to focus only on fusion energy that can be used to generate electricity 30 years from now, or even some of the, the experiments from ITER maybe 10 years from now, but talk about the fact that fusion research is also curiosity-driven yeah. research, to learn about stuff about the universe that isn't just about finding the practical application. So stressing yeah. that it's, 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 it's addressing bigger questions than just how to keep the lights on yeah, or how absolutely. to tackle climate change. Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with that, actually, yeah. Because even with, you know, tokamaks, maybe from the outset, look even more programmatic than, say, um, ICF at this point. Um, but actually, there are tokamaks now with discovery science programs, you know, looking at magnetic reconnection and all of those mm. kind of things. Mm. And it's just, there's, there's so much science you can do with those machines that's not just turning the lights on in 30 yeah, years' time. Yeah. 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 Well, it dovetails nicely with mine, which is to see the, the, the little steps celebrated as well as this. Yeah, the I agree, yeah. Excellent, we'll wrap up there. Uh, Professor Jim McAlealy, Dr. Kate Lancaster. Will? Just Will. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Pleasure. Bye. That was a great episode. That was a really fun episode. I learned so much. Same. So I think uh, for our many listeners, we would really appreciate if you subscribe to our podcast on whatever app you're listening on. Yeah, and check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Just search A Glass of Seawater and we'll come right up. Finally, just uh, if you can, leave us a review on iTunes. That would be incredibly helpful. That would really help us. It greatly increases the visibility of the podcast, probably more than anything else. And tell all your friends and enemies. That was a really good episode. I enjoyed it and I learned a lot. See you next time for the next glass of seawater. Bye.